because you're jumping back into the gut. All right. Hey, coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media on Twitter at Bball Immersion or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Super excited to welcome Leonard Zajkowski and Daniel Peterson, authors of The Playmaker's Advantage and The Playmaker's Decision, to share the game with us in today's podcast. Leonard Zajkowski, a professor, researcher, and consultant for almost four decades at Boston University, pioneered sports psychology by bringing cognitive neuroscience and sports performance together as an interdisciplinary science. His academic textbooks and research publications demonstrated the importance of an athlete's remarkable brain in anticipating and acting on opportunities during competition. He has consulted with teams in the NBA, NHL, NFL, MLB, Australian Rules Football, Spanish Men's National Soccer Team, and Olympic sports organizations around the world. Daniel Peterson is a writer and consultant specializing at the intersection of neuroscience and sports performance. He combined 25 years of technology management experience with his second life as a sports dad and coach to explore how athletes make decisions. Now, 10 years later, as a co-founder and director of the 80% Mental Consulting, he works with coaches, trainers, and teams to understand and improve their cognitive game. Len and Dan, welcome to the podcast and congratulations on the Playmaker's Advantage and the Playmaker's Decisions. These two books are must reading for coaches and, and coaches that listen to the podcast know I, I don't like to throw that out there, must, because that's just, you know, that's not my decision. That's their decision. But in this example, coaches, if you haven't read these two books, you have to read them. Welcome, guys. Well, thanks for the nice plug, Chris. We're really grateful uh, and, and look forward to this podcast. Yeah, Chris, great to be here. Thanks for the invitation and, and thanks for those kind words. Very nice of you. Well, it is sincere. And this is a topic that uh, I, you guys know that is close to my heart as well. So let's get into it a little bit. And let's start with uh, a few statements here to get you guys to comment on so coaches can get an understanding and a feel for where we're going. And the first one, let's start with this decision making, or what often is referred to as feel for the game cannot be coached or trained. True or false? Dan, you you bet lead off on this one, okay? <laughs> um, what we found in all the research that we've read for these last two books is it's a combination that, and, and as we'll talk about, um, there are some things I believe that um, people are born with, especially cognitively, that we'll talk about traits. Uh, but certainly what the research has shown and, and that's where Len spent all of his years doing research and being associated with those researchers is that the right type of training can improve decision-making, can improve some of those things that we, the first book we call the playmaker's advantage, but kind of that, that special something up in the brain. And when I say brain senses, auditory, visual, everything, um, those things can be uh, honed in and trained better. Right, Len? Exactly. Yeah. And, and the, the, you know, I, we connected a lot with David Epstein, who, who wrote about this whole genetic component quite a bit uh, uh, prior to our book coming out. And it got a lot of great traction. And he kind of dispelled that myth that, that so much of this is genetic. But Dan is right in saying that we're, we're, not, all, we're not all created equally. And there's that, you know, I say there's a normal distribution of ability. 
And so it's very conceivable. I, well, I know it. Sure, it happens that, that people are born with different baselines of cognitive ability. So if you're starting out really high uh, cognitively with memory processes and so forth, kind of having an eidetic me uh, memory, and, and you're really good at, at the outset, and then you get these wonderful experiences. You know, I think of a Steve Nash, for example, you know, I think he was probably pretty darn gifted cognitively to start with. Then he had these incredible experiences with the assistance of his father to become, a, you know, just this brilliant basketball players, basketball players. So, uh, yeah, it's that uh, the whole thing, you either, you either you have it or you don't, and you're born with it is, is, is not accurate. So by nature, we have to start the conversation with that, the fact that we can train some of these things. And uh, too often, I think that leads into the second statement. Training decision-making is the area most coaches neglect the most. And I'm speaking about basketball coaches as my, you know, expertise. Well, you're absolutely right, Chris. And it's true across all sports. And I've been involved with almost all of them for decades now. And it, what's amazing is that coaches recognize the importance of, of the, 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 the cognitive components and the decision-making process. But it's ignored in part because they don't know, they, they, they were never mentored or taught how to, how to improve that. Uh, and so now we're engaging them in that discussion. And I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing now, trying to train a specific type of basketball coach to kind of spend, how do you integrate uh, decision-making into your normal everyday drills and, and the practices and so forth? So we'll be talking about that, I'm sure. But yeah, that's for sure the case. You know, and, it, and it's interesting too, when we, um, for both books, but um, we went out and interviewed several high profile coaches, et cetera, and they came back to us and that's kind of the genesis of the second book. The first book, The Playmaker's Advantage was kind of a broad uh, cover the waterfront on on big areas of skill acquisition and, and, and decision-making. Decision-making in the first book was one chapter, but when the first book went out and we had a lot of coaches giving us good feedback, the one thing they kept coming back to and saying is, can you, can you zoom in on that, that black box of decision-making? Because that's where we struggle. And, and partly they, you know, people need to understand a little bit of the neuroscience behind it, not become neuroscientists, but at least understand what's going on in their players' brains. I had a, quote here, uh, actually from the first book, one of the many connections that, that Len hooked us up with for interviews, a gentleman named John Longmire, who's the head coach of the Sydney Swans, one of the premier teams in the Australian Football League, longtime coach down there, very well respected. And if I could, I just read this, this quote from him. He said, athletes come to us uh, having mastered most of the technical demands of the game, but without question, the biggest challenge our coaches face is teaching our players how to make quick and accurate decisions on the field. Uh, all football players are capable of making decisions, but when the game is perceived as important, the psychological pressure changes how a player makes decisions. Likewise, when your opponent applies a lot of pressure, is taking away space and time, decision-making is affected. So our challenge now is to creatively teach decision-making. And, it, you know, we've heard from other coaches with that, with that same idea that, um, we need we we teach drills. We teach um, how to do things on the court tactically, but understanding when a player doesn't do something right, what caused them to block on that when they were under pressure? 
what's what changed in their decision making process. And I think the more you know generically about how people make uh, decisions under pressure, the the better off you can teach that. There's so much there I want to jump into in, in, in what you mm-hmm. both said, but but let me start with a shock statement that I use to get coaches thinking, <laughs> and, and and it builds into what you both said there, which I say to coaches, the decision is more important than the skill. So why are mm-hmm. we spending almost 90% of the practice on skill? And I say that not to diminish skill, but to say, if you make the right decision, chances are it's going to lead to a better outcome. And you can think about that about all levels. I think about that particularly about youth levels. Look, if they make the right decision, they're more likely to enjoy the game more because they have a better chance to be successful. At the Steph Curry level, look, how much can we improve his technical skill of shooting versus the decision to shoot, right? right. So those type of things. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on those statements. No, that that statement from my perspective is absolutely accurate. Uh, uh, the... the uh, What's slowing things down here is is uh, coaches simply haven't thought enough about how to to teach decision making and some even simple concepts, Chris. Like uh, um, rather than telling them what to do, <laughs> because that's how coaches operate, ask lots of questions. Now I know it's time consuming and 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 so forth, but just engaging the the, the cognitive processes by asking questions or particularly in, in looking at video and, and, and asking questions while observing video, get, getting, getting the athletes to engage in, in, in good thinking, good clear thinking, make the right kinds of decisions, at least increase the probability of making good decisions. Before Dan jumps in, can I jump in on that, that comment? Because you said time consuming, but the other challenge for so many basketball coaches is they waste so much time in practice on things that don't connect to the game. So if you remove a lot of that fluff, you have more time to engage in the questions that Len and Dan both throughout the book talk about the importance of those things, right? You're absolutely right. Yeah, that, that's where it's at. Yeah, that it's, it's a waste of time. And I, I like to hearken back to, I was fortunate to have uh, spent uh, the whole day with the great John Wooden, oh, six or seven years before he passed away. And, you know, it's like being in a museum. And, I've had that, and, and he talked about all these things that used a very different vocabulary than what we're using today on, on cognition and perception and, and action. But, uh, but he was doing that stuff, uh, and probably not too many people were listening. definitely they weren't you know and again if you went to most basketball practices by and large you wouldn't see a change from a drill-based basketball practice that we've all grown up with to a certain extent with some exceptions and and the conversations that you have both created uh have have started to change some of these things and get coaches to think more about well what is the actual context that we use these things in a game and why aren't we replicating that in practice yeah and it's it's interesting it's it's not even um I think getting coaches to recognize this, I don't even think it's generational because a quick story, um, it, as I said, Len, uh, in his 40 years, he has built a, a worldwide network of, of contacts. And one of the things when we were getting started with the first book, and I, I pulled Len off the golf course um, from his retirement, but one of the things that I came to Len with, quick story, I said, hey, by the way, I was doing research and I saw this YouTube video of um, Mike Sullivan, then he was in between jobs. He hadn't started with the Penguins yet. 
but he was giving a conference to or a, a talk to, I don't know, 150, 200 hockey coaches uh, at, a, at a conference. And he spent 25 minutes uh, talking about the brain to a bunch of hockey coaches. And he went on and on of everything about the talent code and Dan Coyle and all these things and synapses and neurons. And, and it was, it was eye opening that a coach at that level who went on to join the penguins and win two Stanley cups, um, recognized that the more we know about the brain and how your players cognitive functions work, the better that, that he can do his job. And, of course, I brought this to Len and Len said, oh, yeah, Sully, he was a student of mine back at BU and he played hockey there. And I'm like, <laughs> of course he was. And uh, and so and Mike got so interested in the book that he he wrote the forward for us. We were very appreciative of that. But I just uh, another quick quote from him that kind of goes back to kind of the the generations that that coaches have gone through over the last 20, 30 years. So a quick quote. So he said, when I was playing, and this is Mike Sullivan, when I was playing in college in the late 80s, the new frontier was physical fitness and training. Everyone was getting in the weight room to work on strength and conditioning, developing power, et cetera. That was cutting edge back then. Now we have a pretty good understanding of how to train athletes physiologically. The next frontier is how to get players to better understand anticipation skills, recognition skills, and decision-making, how to deal in that high-stakes environment, just like uh, John Longmire said. And he said, you know, everyone talks about hockey sense being or basketball sense or just something innate. And he said, there's always been an assumption around the ranks that hockey sense is something that you're born with. You either have it or you don't, but you can't teach it. And this is, again, Mike Sullivan. The reality is that hockey sense or sports sense is not unlike learning how to skate or learning how to stick candle or dribble a basketball. This new capability is is what needs it's what coaches need to to figure out. So. Yeah, I think it's a, again, they don't have to become uh, PhDs like Len in this, but they have to read some books and understand basically what's going on there. Yeah, and Chris, that really led to me spending a, a day with the, you know, the extraordinary hockey player, Sidney Crosby with the Penguins, you know, and, and he's one of those guys I'd say that he, his baseline was much different than most young hockey players coming to the National Hockey League, but then he mastered all of that stuff and he's still going strong. and so. It, it's been a pleasure to work with those, those with Sullivan and 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 Sydney and, and and the Penguins. But all this stuff translates to basketball and to other uh, very interactive high speed sports. The same stuff. So perception, action, coupling, or whatever word you guys use, um, you know this, this this concept of perceptual cognitive advantage. The reason coaches should spend more time in these areas is essentially because we can compensate for things that they don't do as well in other areas if we train these two. And that's what Dan connects with this piece back to physical training is that it created an advantage. And this is also something that can create an advantage for a player, correct? Yeah, that was kind of the point behind the word, the advantage there. It's getting that that advantage and it's the perceptual cognitive dimension gives you huge advantages and you know, gosh i have to keep coming back and so grateful that you're kind of pushing the boundaries on this stuff and educating as many coaches are getting into this field because i don't know how else to do it and if any dad and i can support you in any way with your podcast your writings your blogs your your videos whatever just to, to get it out there uh, i think is uh, number one 
Well, I appreciate that. And I, and I'm sure this is your experience too, with some coaches, some world-class coaches that are very curious and very interested in these areas, but they don't have that baseline of kind of sports science knowledge, but it's not totally necessary when you connect it to their specific sport, right? Exactly right. Yeah. And maybe that's the unfortunate part of kind of the, 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 you bringing the, the brain to the forefront is that they 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 believe that this is it's got it's a black the black box we don't don't know much about that certainly I don't know much about it that's their thinking on it and yet it's it's pretty fundamental we just know that it it is it is it, it's the generator basically and you don't have to know all the intricacies of cognitive neuroscience to be an outstanding coach and and teach players how to think quickly and accurately. So, so maybe Dan, let's get your, just because playmaker is at the forefront of everything that you guys have mm-hmm. shared. Can you just go through what that is for, for coaches? So they understand what you mean by the term playmaker. Hey coach, I really appreciate you listening to the basketball podcast, and I hope you will consider supporting it and your coaching even more as the countdown is over. It's here. It's live. It's been years in the making. We have launched our newly redesigned website at basketballimmersion.com. Basketball Immersion is an effective player development tool because we focus on coach development. Since we know the greatest player development is coach development, we support and stimulate change in you as a coach. Now is the time to immerse yourself in learning. In our community, we'll show you how to get specific outcomes using comprehensive video and course-based learning, as well as community interaction and expert sharing in our master classes. You will get specific outcomes to stimulate, add to, make over, or improve your coaching. Join our community today at basketballmersion.com and learn what is possible. Hey, coach, have you gotten on Locker Room app yet? Live audio only sports talk platform, free to download and to use. Talk to me, other fans, athletes, and insiders in real time. Perfect for watch parties, debates, post game breakdowns, and reacting to breaking news. Share your own experiences on the app. All you need to do is download the Locker Room app free in the iOS App Store, create a profile, Link your Twitter and join me at 9 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday nights to ask questions, share ideas, and to have basketball coaching conversations on Locker Room app. Follow me at B-Ball Immersion live on Locker Room on Tuesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. Yeah, you know, uh, and, and I'm I'm a sports dad. You know, I, I, I did not go to school for this. I haven't uh, coached in college for over 25 years. I haven't spent 40 years at a university teaching this stuff. I was just very interested. I had three boys growing up and they all, they played all the sports. And the thing that struck me just as a dad is you go to all these games at all different levels. And there was always that one boy, one girl who just seemed to get it a lot better than the others that they would be, you know, in soccer, they'd be a midfielder or basketball, they'd be a point guard. And they, mostly because they seem to have this quote gift uh, of seeing the court, seeing the field, seeing the ice and being able to make passes and, and see things that others don't. And across sports, uh, you know, when I, when I asked Len to, to um, do this book with me, it, it was kind of like, well, let's come up with a, because as Len said, he's, he's written textbooks about this 300 papers about it, et cetera, but to connect to parents and coaches is what we wanted to do. And so we tried to come up with a new vocabulary that wasn't all neurons and synapses and all of that. 
And we said the one term that seems to cross sports, especially team sports, is playmaker. When someone says, oh, he's the playmaker on that team. Oh, we need another. People kind of agree on what that is. They kind of know it's that person with that extra something beyond their physical skills, et cetera, that they can just see things that others don't. And so that's what we wanted to dig into is what is that? What, what is it in their cognitive makeup that gives them that advantage, the playmaker's advantage? And that was kind of where we kind of wanted to just set the table and so that coaches and parents could start talking about this and have some stories and have some science combined so that they could say, oh, yeah, now I can kind of see that. And oh, by the way, I read this book and there's some research behind how their visual patterns and their working memory and their processing speed, while they're, why they're a little bit better. And to your first point, that we can actually train this stuff. And it's not just, you know, my Johnny has it and yours doesn't. It's, well, maybe your Johnny's a little ahead right now, but mine can catch up if we just focus on some of these things. And I, that's what we really wanted to start with this book and then zooming in on decision-making on the second book is just start that conversation. And just connecting this for basketball coaches, then positionless is the catchphrase of the day that we want positionless players. And I've said this for years is like, why wouldn't you want a whole roster of Steve Nash's? Why don't we want a seven foot Steve Nash, a six, eight, Steve Nash, a six, six, Steve Nash. And to me, this always made sense and always connected with me for a young age is, you know why we don't have them? Because we don't all train them like they're point guards. Well, if we want playmakers, we need to train them all like playmakers. And, and that position list catches that, right? Yeah, I think your listeners would enjoy reading that section we had in the first book on, uh, with Brad Stevens. That was an incredible interview he gave us talking about this whole notion. And, and you hear Dan and I are thinking who the playmakers were with the Celtics at that time. <laughs> He's, no, you guys have got it wrong. Here, here's my playmaker. You know? Yeah. And, and, and so it's... Uh, uh, it's just so wonderful to talk with with coaches who kind of I'm not saying buying into this notion. It, it, it's a kind of a given that it shouldn't have to be a buy-in. It's such an important uh, skill to have. It is such an important skill to have. And the the question then becomes: Is the biggest challenge for coaches the fact that we do too many drills that have predetermined decisions? Like we put our players in practice in practice situations where. The outcome is determined by the coach. And then we remove mm-hmm. decision-making. But I think more dangerous is we remove creativity. We remove that's problem it. solving. Yeah, and then for sure, that's kind of what, what set uh, Steve Nash apart from other players in the NBA at, the, at his time, is that he had that creative dimension to it. And it's been interesting to try to follow him with Brooklyn now. And you know, I had the pleasure of meeting him when he was consulting with, with Golden State. And you know, it's, it's just refreshing to hear... Uh, him describe kind of his development and uh, he could see a lot of players and ex-players cannot articulate the kinds of things they did. He could. And, and a Sidney Crosby can do that too. And so it's so refreshing to kind of get their take on um, how to be as good as they are. Well, and that's something that you talk about and you both, that shines through in both books is the fact that you need to spend more time asking your players, what do you see? What are your cues? What are the things that bring this home for you because what we think they should be seeing isn't always the case, right? They might see something different. Well, particularly when you're standing on the sidelines, as <laughs> a coach. We're not playing. <laughs> they're, going, they're going North and South. Yes. You're going East and West. So you're going to see things very differently. 
Can you give us some examples think, then of the questions we should be asking? Yeah, and I think the, um, the the biggest thing that we took away, especially when we we dove down into the decision making process, is one of the things we do in that in the playmakers' decisions is we came up with a, a model. <laughs> every every good book needs a model, so we had this wheel and we divided up into six sections. And so we really kind of, and, and there's all kinds of research on that and people have different models, but we thought, what are the things when a player's out in the field, court ice, what are the things that are really affecting how they make decisions? And so we broke that into kind of two categories. One is traits, things that they bring to the table. And one is constraints, uh, things that are put on upon them. And so we tried to break those down and that's how the book's organized, a chapter for each. And one of the things, just like you said, is the the tactical part of it, you know, that you spend all week with your coach, he's drawing up plays, he's saying, this is how we need to attack this opponent, etc. But especially for a developing player, they're out there, they're in the middle of the chaos. And they're one of the things they're trying to remember is, what did my coach say? What was that play? I can't remember that play. And the pressure is on them. And they, they're trying to not make the coach mad at them. Um, and they're trying to create, as you say, but yet there's kind of this, this um, collar on them that says, no, no, you're going to play my way because I'm the coach. And it's that balance of teaching creativity versus, you know, following the tactical plan that I told you to do. And it's one of the things we talk about in both books, especially for parents on the sidelines, is one of the things that developing players are trying to do throughout their development is move from uh, move towards automaticity or the ability to just make decisions uh, intuitively, but that's a learning process to be able to go from you know when you first start learning to dribble a basketball, all of your focus, all of your attention as a little kid is on bouncing that ball and getting the ball to come up to your hand and then doing it with your other hand and back and forth. All the focus is on that, just learning that skill. Eventually, that becomes secondhand. You're not even thinking about the ball dribbling at your hand. You're thinking about everything else. All of the decisions, if we can, need to go to that point so that when a, you know, a Steph Curry or a Steve Nash or whoever, when they see a court, they have built up thousands and thousands of previous patterns in their head from all these situations they've seen. And the brain just goes to work subconsciously on pattern recognition. And yes, this play, this second of the game isn't exactly like something they've seen before, but the brain is able to generalize and say, we've seen similar situations and this is the thing to do. And for them to be able to do that in a half a second before they the chance is gone, that's the automaticity that they have to get to. They have to be able to see it and do it immediately. But that's the point of being a, letting them make mistakes, letting them experiment letting them uh, under pressure say, all right, that was the wrong, that was the wrong thing to do. And next time I know how to do it better. So it's, it's all of those pattern recognitions built up over time is how, you know, people become better playmakers. Len, I want to get your thoughts on this too, because I, like Dan mentioned constraints and that's the other, I mean, something that I really try and get coaches to understand the difference between a must and a possibility is really the way I try and phrase it. And too often, coaches, we talk to players about this is a must. You must do it this way. 
rather than this is a possibility within <laughs> these options. And it doesn't mean let them play. And too often coaches interpret this as just roll up the balls and let them play. No, no, no. You have here's three possibilities instead of just one. And then that opens up decision making in a different way, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I, and I was thinking a little bit about like, and I'm observing coaches and certainly in, in your sport of basketball and coaches and in, in soccer where they're moving in this direction also, uh, and for sure in, in hockey in, in recent years. But it's, it's, I come back to the idea of when as a coach, you blow that whistle and you stop the action and you say, now you should have done this. And then never give the player the opportunity to just ask the question. No, you made this move. Didn't seem to work. What, 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 what other options were there that you had? What could you have done? So now they're engaged in that thinking process. Yeah, what was your thought process is a simple way of asking it, right? Yeah, and maybe it takes a few more seconds. Chris, sure. Without being sarcastic, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, without being sarcastic. <laughs> it's a simple concept for coaches to learn to be better teachers, if you will. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what it is. I love this. And um, so so let's go back then, because I, I didn't want to diminish skill, because you talked about it, Dan, right there. The importance of comfort and confidence with your skills is paramount to being a better decision maker. So mm -hmm. maybe I'm not sure who wants to talk about it first, but the role of these blocked on-air repetitions to develop comfort and confidence are still important. But what I argue to coaches is that should not be coach-led within our practice. Our practices should be about connecting skills and decisions together because that's the value of us as a coach. So I'm not sure who wants to take that first. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, one of the things that, that we learned a lot in looking into all of this, I certainly did learn knew a lot of this is also looking at decision-making researchers, experts outside of sports. And so we did a lot of um, searching for decision theory, decision research, a lot of the stuff you've done, Chris, and it's um, there are some very interesting theories out there that apply directly to sports, and we've put some of them in the book. But one of the gentlemen we talked to is Dr. Gary Klein. And for years, 40 years, he's been studying decision-making under pressure. He just studies, but he studies uh, firefighters. He studies uh, law enforcement. He studies military. Anywhere where the stakes are high, uh, sports never reaches that level, but stakes are high, time is limited, and you need to make a pressure situation. And he sees, we, we were lucky enough to interview him, and he sees so many similarities to sports. And he said, sports is interesting to study because it's kind of contained with these rules, et cetera. It's not all the variables of real life. But he said, one of the biggest things he's seen over the years when he observes sports and talks to people is the fear of making mistakes by kids and how that really paralyzes them. The fear of a coach yelling at them for making a mistake, the fear of a parent saying something about when the pass or a shot doesn't work. Um, and another quick quote from, from Dr. Klein that we have in there is he says, I think it's too bad when the training in youth sports is about not making mistakes. It is very procedural. It's getting these drills down. Part of the assumption is once you get all the basics down, at some point later on in your career, you can learn about the decision-making part. But now you have all kinds of negative transfer to overcome that you have to overcome the way you've been taught to do it. The decision-making should be there from the very start. That's the way of building adaptive models rather than trying to graft it on later. 
kids become paralyzed because they are afraid of making mistakes. You see the tension. You see how nervous they are that they'll be blamed if they don't execute the way that they were taught. And I think that's a big takeaway for coaches is, you know, not celebrate the mistakes, but at least don't go crazy on the, on the mistakes. You know, if, if they were seeing something else that they didn't understand, you know, like you said, ask them questions about, about how they could have done that differently. Just before Len goes, Len, one second, if you don't mind, because I got to throw in the other part that you guys share, which coaches, you have to read the book. We're not going to get into it as much here, but (laughs) you talk about world-class players are the best players in the world, forget their mistakes, right? They move on from their mistakes so they don't spend time, which is also something we should be spending so much time with young players on teaching them coping skills, right? In that way, because that's really what you're talking about. It's not about making the mistake or correcting the mistakes, it's about holding on to it. It's like any NFL, yeah, any NFL cornerback knows that after getting burned by uh, Aaron Rodgers or someone, it's like next play, move on. You know, you can't think about that. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Len, go. Great point that you made, but I was going to add too that that even at we were talking about Dan was talking specifically about youth sport and fear of making mistakes, but I've seen it and you have, I'm sure, Chris, at the collegiate level as well. And then you see it at the pro level, particularly youngsters are breaking in. Now they develop, obviously, then they can forget what they've learned to forget those mistakes. But in the early stages, uh, depending on the level you're at, there's that, that is a limiting dimension of their performance. They're afraid of making mistakes, and they make mistakes. I theorize for youth sport, the best model is to have a coach that runs practice and a completely different person that coaches games. So that you remove your ego from the game process, right? Because I find myself a much better coach in practice when I'm not worried about competitive outcomes, right? Because we're focused on different things. And I know that's just a theoretical example, but just to throw that out there. (laughs) (laughs) You create a new model for coaching. I'm the practice coach, you're the games coach. Well, we're going to do that. My wife's going to coach the games for my daughters. They're eight and 10. And I'm going to just run practice. (laughs) I'm going to focus on development. So I don't attach myself to the ego of the game at all. And uh, we're going to try it. So I'll let you know in a few years. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're running your own experiment. Yeah. Why not? It's all fun. And I'll tell you one other experiment I did. And I'd love to hear your comments on for a collegiate team. And this is a collegiate team. We played five on five every single minute of practice. We didn't do any you know, small sided games or anything like that. But we didn't do any on air except for shooting. We did isolated shooting and development that way, but and repetitions. But by and large, we went through a whole season of just five on five. And I wanted to do that experiment to see, okay, are we going to drop off? And we didn't. We didn't because everything we did in practice was connected to the game and to the player getting better at using their skills or decisions within a game context. Yeah. That did you, Chris, did you go ahead? Go ahead, no, man. I'm sorry. I was going to say, and, and, and the great John Wooden, you know, he ended every practice with the scrimmage, you know? And, uh, and so obviously he was thinking about that way back then. So my comment to that is why do they have to wait to the end of practice to have dessert? Why can't they, why can't they start practice with dessert? And that speaks to what both of you have talked about already. And you've talked about in the books is this concept of hard first instruction, like connecting, like how can they develop the skill if they don't understand where they're going to use it? And we often start with developing skill, 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 and then putting them in a game situation. Why can't you use a skill? Well, because they don't know how to connect it. Chris, when you, when you do that five on five in practice, do you, do you intermittently coach 
in during Absolutely. that scrimmage? Yeah. No, there's yeah. Yeah. there's stopping, there's questions. There's, there's, it's a game's approach, game sense, whatever you want to say. So we're stopping and we're coaching it in the context of the game, short bursts of information, you know, trying to stay away from summary feedback as much as stopping it within the context of when the mistake happens and then restarting it. Right. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. What we're talking about now, Chris, is kind of training the brain to activate the the brain more in the decision-making process. And one of the questions Dan and I were getting a lot after the, the books came out is kind of, are there other ways in which we can train the brain besides uh, on the pitch, on the court, on the ice, wherever it might be? And there's been a move in recent years, and I've been a part of it, and so has Dan, of, of bringing technology in to help kind of help the, the various uh, skill sets, the sub-skills within the perception and cognition to, to train the brain, if you will. And it's been slow to to get traction in the field, and maybe we can talk about that on, at another podcast. But uh, I think there, and we're in a sense we're in the era of technology, and the youth really embracing it. I think there may be something there where we can help train the brain to help athletes in making better decisions. Let's stay away from virtual reality and anything like that that's coming. But let's <laughs> stay with video, coach. Or well, that's where I let's stay with video. So how, what's the best way for me to help train a player on decision-making using video in your opinions? Well, I think video is still clearly superior to uh, any, to any virtual reality stuff that I've encountered. Yeah. It's hard to find anything that that's really, really, truly virtual. Uh, and I should say reality. Uh, but no, the best stuff for sure is, is using video in a creative way because it's the real stuff. And it, it comes back to, uh, to you know, not needlessly watching tons and tons of, or hours and hours of video. And I know as a coach, you probably did so much of that. Uh, and uh, and I, coaches in all sports, so the ones we're talking about, uh, spend an extraordinary amount of time, and, and, and so do the players. Uh, but I think we have to get a little smarter. Uh, think about how we could be much more efficient in watching the video to, to capture this the decision-making process, not necessarily the technical, tactical aspects of the game. That's my thinking on that. Yeah, and I think the, okay. um, and you've been involved with this a lot, Len, the um, occlusion part of video. So for example, Len's involved with a, a company that is teaching pitch recognition to batters. And really the the use and the leverage of technology is when they're done with their practice, when they're done with their day, uh, they can't play basketball eight hours a day. So there's a physical limitation to how long they can actually do that. But to get these mental reps, to get these repetitions of seeing things and to use your, your visual and your brain and your processing and making decisions with technology, there's a chance they could sit on the couch at home when they're physically recovering but still engage their brain in looking at video. So for example, um, you know, watching a hundred different pitches and that's occluded when the, when the arm releases the ball right here and then trying to predict what that is it a fastball curveball, et cetera. And other things in basketball, if there's basketball that's occluded video, which way this guy, you're defending a guy coming up the court, we're going to occlude the video as soon as he gets to about three feet from you. Can you start to pick up body cues? Is he going to go left or is he going to right or is he going to pass? And 
those repetition after repetition after repetition, that's starting to train the brain of learning to pick up those cues that at least if it's a real person on a real video, it's not 3D, it's not the real thing, but it's like you said, it's better than a, uh, a virtual reality part of that. You're actually watching a human being uh, and there's been plenty of research on the occlusion video part. The other thing I'll, I will say so, that- Sorry, can I, I just ask in, a question? Yep, go ahead. That? Yeah. So, yeah. so basically just to clarify for coaches, we're playing a clip, but then we're stopping it at a certain point so they don't see the rest of the clip. And then That's we're right. engaging them in a question and answer or pause recall exactly. process, yeah. right? So they have to anticipate what they should do. And that's a lot better than just running the, the, the whole reel, you know, running through it. And so it's already done. So you, you're engaging the, the cognitive functions of, of the athletes. Say, what should have happened? So it's, it's occluded or it's stopped. And, and we just, you know, basketball coaches and coaches in other sports haven't gotten into that yet. Slowly getting there. But we started it with baseball and softball, but it's an easier sport to do that. I've said this on the podcast before to, to different coaches and that one of the hardest parts about evaluating decision-making is the outcome. So if you remove the outcome from the decision about whether it was a good decision or not, you're more likely to evaluate whether it's a good decision. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. For sure. yep. Yeah. So that's the one thing we can encourage all your coaches watching or listening to your podcast is that be thinking about how they might use video in a creative way and Clearly, the, the science really speaks highly about using visual occlusion to enhance the decision-making process. I love that. Dan, and not only continue. from a yeah. no, I was going to say not only from a, a time occlusion, like we're going to stop it at certain points, you know, right before they make a cut or something, then predict what will happen, but also spatial occlusion. So there's other systems that will say take away the upper half of the body and just have them watch the hips, or take away the lower half of the body. And there's actually been quite a bit of research on. What do the experts, what do the um, uh, playmakers, if you will, what are they watching? And then eye tracking glasses and the whole thing. What are they watching versus what are novices watching? And then, you know, over time, over hundreds and hundreds of repetitions, learning to say, this is where you focus, focus on their hips, focus on these things, don't watch the ball, things like that. And then they put on, you know, um, what uh, what Joan Vickers has done a lot of work on is putting on the eye tracking glasses and say to a goalie or to uh, you know someone coming up the court, um, what are you watching? Well, I'm watching this. And then you put the eye tracking glasses on. No, you're not. You're watching all over here. Or when you're shooting a free throw, where are you looking? Well, I'm looking at the front of the rim. No, you're not. You're looking all over the place. And, and it, then it's like, oh, okay, I guess I am. And it's a realization that with the help of technology, we can tell you where you're focusing, et cetera. The other one I wanted to throw in there that we had a little blurb in this book about is uh, this gentleman, Sean Green at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, professor of psychology there, done some very interesting work on what they can learn, what um, developing players, developing um, uh, young kids can learn from playing video action games. So nothing to do with sports necessarily, and this is more a message for parents uh, or coaches who are parents, is, you know, kids love to play action games, you know, on their Xbox or whatever. As parents, I know when my kids were growing up, we'd always cringe and go, go outside and play. Don't play that video game all the time. And it's, of course, it's a balance. But what Dr. Green's research has shown is doing action video games where you're kind of in the first person and you have to, you know, unfortunately the violence in them is not that great, but the, the shooter games or something, 
but something where you're engaged. He's done research that shows um, students who play those games for a certain number of you know minutes a day, they can actually increase those core cognitive skills, working memory, reaction time, attention, because they're not just playing some brain training game. They're engaged, just like a sports game. And so there is a little bit of an argument uh, that maybe parents, after the homework is done and everything, they they let them play for a little bit because it actually does help if they're engaged in that environment. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit of what we call overspeed training for the brain. There you go. Yep. Love that phrasing. Can I give you another phrase that I think coaches, they, again, I, this is going to be something I adapt from your book. And this is this concept of active patience. Can you talk about that? Because I think that phrasing is so important for coaches to understand. Dan, you bat lead off again on that. <laughs> I was trying to remember that one. Uh, so it was the New York Yankees example of them during the training process. Basically, it's what, what Len has talked about already. This concept of when you ask questions or you engage the learners in the learning uh, process, that you're patient with them. Because here's the problem for coaches. We think we know the answer. So it's faster for us to just tell them the answer. Exactly but it's right. better that they arrive at it. We all know that. But in the competitive environment of sport, we feel there's no time. We got to keep up the intensity. We got to keep up the hard work. And we feel like they're not improving if we're not working hard. Right. And it's kind of, I, I think of it as a parent, too. The, the old praise the good, uh, ignore the bad. You know, don't. Don't yell at them for the mistakes, but praise the creative part. Praise when they do something well, and they'll learn through that positive reinforcement that that is a good thing. I should have done that again. Um, but don't beat them up on the bad stuff. The, um, the other area I just want you to get into a little bit is this neural mechanism of search, decide, and execute. Because I think it's, a, it's, it's also phrasing that coaches can use. And I think we don't use phrasing with players. And I think players, by and large, are smarter. I'm not sure if you agree with that, but they just have more access to more information. So they're smarter than they used to be. So I'm not afraid to call players learners because that's what they are. And if we phrase them that way, they're more likely to be that. But using these terms, I think, are really important. Search, decide, execute to help them understand what decision making is. Hey, coach, have you checked out immersionvideos.com? Immersionvideos.com has exclusive products from Doug Novak, Aaron Fern, Dave Smart, and now successful high school coach Mark Cassio. The all-access high school basketball practice with Mark Cassio is now available. Embrace the modern basketball movement by applying a decisive, fast, and free philosophy. Experience Coach Cassio's game-based practices, up-tempo attack, innovative offensive and defensive concepts, and impactful skill development. Access one of the best high school basketball educators in the world. Open the doors and get full access to three practices and a drill video library. Go to MarkCassioBasketball.com to learn more. Hey coach, as I mentioned, if you download and start using Locker Room app, you can talk to me, other fans, athletes, and insiders in real time. It is a great place to listen and to share your own experiences on the app. I've enjoyed the ongoing conversations, watching games together, reacting to the biggest news, rumors, and games for sure. But mostly, I've enjoyed talking with coaches like yourself in real time. Join in on conversations with me and others. I'll be hosting rooms every week on Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. Come through and talk with me live. Great point you made, Chris, uh, that we, 
I think it's, uh, we have to teach coaches to use this. Maybe it's contemporary vocabulary. It's maybe a, a, a little bit of cognitive neuroscience, but not be afraid to use that that terminology, that language, and and it, so it becomes secondary and and part of the vocabulary of athletes. And Dan and I came up with this search and decide and execute as a simple little concept because that's what that whole process starts with. We're always searching for cues. And in, in, in soccer, they talk about the swivel head. And you, you've got it to a lesser extent in basketball because you don't have as big a field of pitch. But there is that swiveling. Uh, and the, the, the playmakers, if you will, they're great at searching. I mean, and they, they find the right cue. So that's kind of step number one, the searching for cues. And then uh, make that quick and accurate decision. But that's based on hours and hours of kind of what we call deliberate practice. And so they can make that decision. And then that last step is execute. Like that you do it flawlessly because you've rehearsed it so many times. Uh, and not, again, not being afraid of, of messing up and, and uh, stepping out of bounds or whatever. So you, you, it's that, that execution part that's part and parcel of all of us. So, uh, yeah, we, we, we like that. I think many coaches who have read our book kind of gravitate to that. Pretty simple search, decide, then execute. I, I think it's tremendous phrasing. I think we have to start to speak that way to, sure. to players because we want them to be that. And if we don't speak that way, they're not going to be that. That's right. That's right. So, you know, you've got a forum now, Chris, to, to spread, spread, spread the word. You're helping me. Hey, before you, I want to get into also recall tasks, um, which, which connects back to what we talked about, about asking questions. It's basically this concept of, uh, you said occlusion in terms of video, but also in terms of practice is like, pa- stop within the context of them playing a small sided games or five on five and be able to say to them, have you seen this before? Have you seen this pattern before? Have you seen something in this context before that helps you now determine what you're going to do next? And that's part of what you mean by this pattern recognition or recall task, right? Absolutely. Yeah, ex- absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say the, and, and part of that search, decide, and execute, what we call that is the athlete, another term we just make up. It's a fun part when you write books, just make up Love terms. It. Um, is the athlete cognition cycle is what we call that because it's a never ending loop when you're out in a game is you're constantly, you might do that a thousand times in a game, this cycle of searching for opportunities, visual perception, uh, recognizing, uh, decide what to do with the input you've been given through your senses and then execute. And they all influence each other. So if I don't do a very good job with visual perception, if, I don't, if I'm not seeing things and bringing those into my brain, the decision may be poor. If I know my own skill level, I may see that, oh, I could do a cross-court pass there. That's an opportunity. But, you know, the confidence level and the emotions and other thing, the player might say, I I don't have that in my toolkit. So I'm going (laughs) to eliminate that decision and I'm going to execute this way. Or (laughs) sometimes what we see is I think I can make that cross-court pass, but unfortunately I didn't execute it uh, well. And now that's a lesson loop. I learned that I don't yet have that skill to make that bounce pass into the lane. I have to work on that. So it's a, it's cycle after cycle after cycle. And then when we, in the next book, when we drill down into that middle one, that decision-making, then we kind of said, all right, what are the influences? We talked about tasks and constraints, but 
just to break those down a little bit more for example or the uh, traits and constraints um the traits we look on is first of all attention a lot of what we talked about with visual perception but it's not just what the eye see it's what you're paying attention to um it's the cognition part your your working memory and your processing speed and then emotion i mean um, sports is emotion and so so much of what goes on in a game and what a player does and doesn't do is tied to the emotion of the game. Are they feeling confident at that moment? Will they take that shot or have they missed their last three and they're going to back off on that? That is a, um, a trait of theirs, how they handle those three things. On the constraint side, we talked about tactics and the tactics that they're trying to remember that their coach uh, has tried to drill into them. But the other two, one is uh, the rules of the game, which is interesting. There's some research out there but somewhere along the line, when a player develops, they're taught the rules, either explicitly or they learn by osmosis. You know, playing out in the playground, they learn some rules of basketball. Playing in, you know, grade school leagues, they learn a few more rules. But eventually, they've got this whole cognitive construct of the rules of the game. I can do this. I can't do that. What is a double dribble? What is the traveling? All these things that eventually their brain has to store and say, this is what you can and can't do. Um, and then the last one, of course, is time. You know, everything is so time constrained, not only by an official clock, I've got a 24 second shot clock, I've got to get it off across the center line in eight or 10 seconds, but also time, you know, pressure of an opponent. So all of these things, you know, rules, time and tactics are weighing on them from the outside affecting a decision. And then they internalize all the things that they're controlling, like their attention, their cognition, and their emotion. And, and that kind of affects, you know, how they make better decisions. And so that's kind of how we tried to break it down chapter by chapter to say, all right, let's drill into the attention research. Let's drill into the time research and, and look at those different factors. Len, I have to ask, because I, I deal with this the most of all things. How does a coach know it works? Because that's the biggest challenge I find is when I share these ideas and I can provide research, they don't want to read the research and that's fine, but I can provide this information to them and they go, well, how do you know this works? How do you know playing basketball in practice helps translate to the basketball game is part of the kind of mystery to me that they don't get that part because they're used to doing drills and on-air practice and block practice and all these different things that are tradition and cultural norms. Boy, it's, isn't it difficult to break old habits? And we coach the way we were coached, by and large. Uh, never been taught to think, to coach in, in creative ways. And so when the question is asked, so how do we know that training perception and cognition is go, really going to make a difference? Gosh, I don't know how to kind of better explain it. It just seems so intuitive. For those of us in the field as teachers, you know, like, my God, uh, you, 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 you said earlier, why, why can't we have a whole team of Steve Nash's, some taller and some shorter, you know? But it, it's they're they're the playmakers. They they they've got that advantage. Uh, so no, I, I you're right. They're not going to read the research on the, the benefits benefits of of training cog, cognition. Uh, there, there's, a, there's a wonderful kind of more theoretical paper going to be coming out shortly. Well, it's been, one's been written, there's going to be a follow-up to my good colleague in Australia, 
he called something, he called it co developing cognitive fitness. And I think we'll alert your audience to that at another time. But it's, it's kind of a brilliant piece. Of, is there an analog for physical fitness? We all know what that is. You know, any coach and, and player will know what physical, they can describe it. But say, can you describe what cognitive fitness is for me? Well, this is what we're talking about. So we're going to, we're, Eugene uh, Aidman is working with a bunch of us and developing this construct of what is cognitive fitness and how do we measure it? How do we train it? And, you know, it, it may take us uh, another decade to get this mainstream, but I think that's kind of the, that's going to happen, Chris. But you guys talk about cognitive fatigue too, right? In that sense yeah. that mm -hmm. like really the main connection that coaches don't make when they think about physical training is that it helps them make better decisions for longer periods of time, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So I love that connection. And, and learning to... Yeah, learning to make those decisions when you are physically exhausted. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of research that shows that goes down. And I think for coaches too, the one question back to them is, does your team ever make mental mistakes? That's another term like playmaker. Like you hear it all the time on, on TV and from coaches. Well, you know, we had some mental mistakes out there. Well, okay, that's exactly what we're talking about. How can we make more clutch plays and be make, you know, develop more playmakers? and reduce your mental mistakes during a game. And if you're interested in reducing mental mistakes of your team, this is the stuff that you might want to be interested in. And that was the goal of the books is not just to send them, you know, 40 research papers and have them read them. Uh, that's tough. <laughs> but to have books that combine stories, quotes from coaches that perhaps they admire, um, and and blend in some of the science in a readable fashion that, that starts to make sense. Okay, here's a whole thing about what is a mental mistake? What is happening when they make that wrong decision? And how can I improve on that? And if they're interested in that, and say, so, well, of course, I'd like to reduce my mental mistakes on my team. Well, this is the subject matter then you have to start paying attention to. Can I, can I just say, this is why I recommend your books to everyone is to be able to get that that almost entertainment version, and I don't want to diminish it, but it's more entertaining <laughs> it is, to read is. your book together than lens research on its own. <laughs> <laughs> That's not offensive. That's true. Right. You got that right. Uh, but then if, but then if you're interested now go read the research. And that's where when coaches ask me for book recommendations, like I can send them like periodicals and say, go read all these and different things. But really, it's your book that starts and gets them excited to learn more. One of the things we also try to do, Chris, is to, to blend in areas that most athletes and coaches can relate to. And these are kind of high stakes events and, and special forces in the military where, you know, it's life and death situations as opposed to winning and losing a game. <laughs> and Dan talked about that a little earlier, too. So we try to bring in some of those stories too, and rely on on those kinds of events where decision making is so important. So when you asked the question earlier, how do we know it works? Well, you know, people in these high stakes environments know it works, and they're teaching it. So why can't we in sport get involved and and borrow some of those great concepts and apply it to our athletes? Can I add something to that uh, Dan brought up, and especially when we talk about youth sports, too often that as coaches, we connect mistakes to a lack of concentration or a lack of focus 
when the reality is they're making mistakes because they're actually attuned to too much, right? And where the, the X sign of expertise is that you attune to less and you really know what is important versus non-important. And I think that's such an important part because I think we, we've presented to athletes in a way where they think it's impossible. Like, oh, I have to concentrate. Well, no, actually you have to concentrate on less is what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, I think too, the, um, and that's what we talked about a little earlier about, and, and I was guilty of this when my boys were growing up until I <laughs> learned the lesson is that, you know, we call them joystick parents on the side. They want to tell uh, little Dan exactly what to do. Pass here, go there, do that, shoot. And what we try to tell them saying, look, there's research that backs this up, but please, please understand this is your little developing playmaker there, his brain or her brain is so busy right now trying to figure out this chaos around them. They already know what the coach wants them to do. And they're trying to make decisions on the fly. They're trying to get to that automaticity where they can make instant decisions on their own. But if they've got mom or dad, you know, coaching them second by second on the sideline, that just destroys that automaticity of, well, I thought I was going to do this, but now I hear dad yelling at me to do this. So I better do it. Or he's, it's just, you know, go to the games, cheer them positively. But that, that coaching from the sideline does not help your young player. It only, it, it slows their development. And that applies to coaches too. And it's as simple as that conversation to have with parents and, you know, with your assistants, whoever it is to tell them, listen, Every time you yell something, you are taking away a decision-making opportunity from a player that ultimately helps them develop, right? Yeah, yeah. And, right. and many times they can't hear it anyhow. They just know something. <laughs> it's just noise. Yeah, it's just noise. Or, or as you guys have referred to, too, it's, it causes undue stress on a player when it's already right. stressful enough. Yeah. Yeah. Dad's yelling something. I don't know what it is, <laughs> <laughs> but I should know it right now. Um, uh, Len, Len, maybe you to start with on this one, because this concept of repetition without repetition, that is at the foundation of everything in terms of all this sport research around skill acquisition, motor learning. So basically I want to get your way of helping coaches understand this, because I think sometimes they don't understand that literally every moment of a basketball game is a new experience for a player, right? So if we're practicing in this really monotonous blocked way, then we're not replicating the conditions under which they're going to use these skills in really novel ways in new situations. Yeah, it comes back to my, our late friend, uh, Anders Erickson at Florida State, who coined the term the deliberate practice stuff mm -hmm. coming out of chess and others. And then finally, we talked him into getting into sport and uh, made some important contributions, but it's, I think what you're getting at Chris here is that how do we engage coaches in, in this deliberate practice that brings in the whole notion of creativity? Cause that it's rare that you see the same thing repeated over and over identically, you know, other than the foul shot, you know, yeah. but everything else is just, there's going to be variations of that. And to get athletes to understand coaches first, then athletes second, uh, to to understand that whole notion that uh, uh, it, it's a deliberate kind of practice that allows for uh, a variability in what you do. And that's an interesting concept, too. There's much research on that, and I'm sure you've read it, Chris, too. And, you know, that, that, you know, 
on something as simple as the follow shooting, for example, where it's from exactly the same point. And yet we've, we've learned that we can improve follow shooting by shooting from, 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 from slightly different uh, 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 metrics uh, on, on the court. So that, that variation in practice is an important concept. And I think we have to get, get, get that across to coaches as well. Great stuff. You know, and I, when um, Len and I were lucky enough to, uh, to interview Anders um, before he passed for the first book, and it, and it was a very enlightening uh, conversation. And I think as a, a lot of your listeners know, um, Malcolm Gladwell took his research and turned it into the 10,000 hour theory, which we can't hear enough of now. Um, and, you know, as, as Dr. Erickson always said, you know, it wasn't about the quantity. It was about the quality, the deliberate practice is what the, the point of his research was. Um, but uh, one of the quotes I wanted to pull out uh, from Dr. Erickson that he gave us is he said, I'm basically arguing that when you look at a lot of the practice that I've seen visiting all sorts of different teams, very little of that is actually even getting close to this idea of individualized deliberate practice where somebody's doing something that is uniquely appropriate for them to improve some aspects of their performance, basically in some more individualized uh, context. So he's saying, just like you said, Chris, there's a lot of, you know, repetitive practice going on, but are you focusing in on each individual player and what they individually need to improve on? Uh, and, and, I, and presenting them with yeah, opportunities. And I love that. that. And I, I think the phrasing, if I remember from your book, was something about creating false environments in youth sports, mm-hmm. that we create all these false environments that don't actually happen, right? <laughs> right. I, and I like that. I'm, I'm taking that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so tell, tell me then, help, help us summarize a little bit of this, uh, both of you then. So uh, I'm a basketball coach. You've sold me on this. I'm going to read your books. Awesome. <laughs> but what are the practical applications that I can get to, you know, to most, I guess, most to have the most impact on decision-making and development? You want to go, Len? Go ahead. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> well, so, so one of the things that um, when we finished up this book, uh, the two, the final chapters are two on improving decision making, and uh, then, or I'm sorry, measuring uh, decision making, and then improving decision making, and that was part of the um, the measurement is interesting. And you said this earlier, Chris. Is it's one of the things we've wrestled with throughout this is, especially in a team sports environment. Um, I made this pass. That happened. I made this decision to make that pass right there. Um, was that a good decision? And, you know, player may make, you know, dozens of passes during a game, but breaking it down, you know, we start to look at the tools that analytics and other things are giving us and, and video, being able to chop up video and all these things. And that's still kind of an unanswered question because I, we kept trying to go back and say, how do you measure? decision-making. And we asked a lot of people and read a lot of papers and there's really not a good answer other than I know when I see it, you know, I know a good decision when I see it or that pass led to a score. Therefore that was a good pass, but it still might have been a good pass, but then something that happened two passes later didn't go well and it was a turnover. And so, okay, should we call the first pass a bad decision? And then when you try to benchmark it and say, all right, our team goal is to improve our decision-making. 
all right, how do we measure that? Because to improve something, you need to measure it. You need to take a baseline. You need to look at, we went from here to here and our decision-making improved X percent. That's still tough to do. And, and we looked far and wide of different sports. Obviously, a lot of people are doing a lot of work in analytics. They're trying to find some decision-making statistics, if you will, uh, pass completion rate. But then you look at, you know, uh, what was it an easy pass, a long pass, a tough pass, um, shots, you know, people like Kirk Goldsberry and others who have done this amazing work of charting shots and charting passes and seeing the percentages and, you know, why most teams take three pointers now instead of the, the mid range shot is based on, well, the stats say to do this. Um, so if you're making that decision, we're going to teach to you to do that decision, but it's still a, a, a tough area because there's not in a team sport. There's so many variables of the other players and the opposition you're facing, et cetera. It's tough to say, we improved our decision-making um, as far as how to do it. We talked about a few of the things I think, as far as, like you said, Chris, in your practices, you know, maybe you or have an assistant or something jot down how many minutes of the total practice were the players actively making decisions, not doing a drill, not standing in line, not waiting for something to happen, but, X percentage of the time they were actually making decisions in real time in a game situation. And logic, I guess, would say the more you increase that, the more time you spend in practice making active decisions, uh, the more experience they're going to get, the more patterns they're going to see. They're going to start cataloging those things. And over time, that's going to turn into that tacit knowledge that they can do automatically because they've seen so many more situations. Yes, like you said, Chris, we have to work a little bit on technical skills and we have to, but could we work on that while we're also making decisions? So, I don't know, Len, what do you have on that? Yeah, that was well summarized, Dan. That whole measurement thing is, it, it, but I'm, I'm still pretty optimistic about the people who are working in analytics that we'll come up with some metrics here in a few years uh, across all sports that we'll be able to measure, uh, you know, very quickly or game summaries and maybe after the quarters and halves uh, uh, summary statistics of players and their decision-making that, that that's something that everybody's grappling with now, but with the, the strides that are being made in artificial intelligence, I, th I think we're going to get there and we'll have some pretty good metrics uh, that, you know, aren't laborious because that, that's the problem right now. So that's my hope, Chris, that we'll, we'll, we shortly be, be have metrics that can describe the, the effective decision makers and those who are less effective uh, on the court and on the ice and on the field. Well, that will be fun. I can't wait for that. Uh, <laughs> just maybe lend quickly then. So as a coach, I'm training skills, I'm training decisions. Are they best? Is it safe to say they're best trained together? after initial learning, so after initial concept, or are you of the belief now that we should just throw them in hard first instruction and then figure out what to work on in terms of breaking it down after they've kind of experienced it? What are the, some of the best ways now to be able to approach that? Well, it's, it's uh, like the, the whole concept of mind-body. They, they're, 
they're necessarily together. It's very difficult to, to separate them. But I think we've got to get this into the, the vocabulary that sport is well beyond technical uh, skills. That is the decision, the, the, the thought processes. And we're going to be teaching this uh, in, in conjunction, one, one with the other. So we try not to separate them out. And uh, it, this is going to take a little bit of time because coaches uh, of your vintage and, and even younger ones, they haven't been taught that. So we've got to kind of push back the barriers of darkness here, Chris. Love it. Bringing this back home then, I mean, these two books, as I said, uh, must reading, they're great reads, uh, Playmakers Advantage and Playmakers Decisions. And uh, they will help coaches, won't they, Dan, connect these ideas that we're talking about to what they can do or what they can do better. Yeah, and I, I think the biggest thing, Chris, is uh, as I mentioned before, I'm I'm a sports dad. I I have not sat in your shoes, in their shoes, coaching a team other than my my little kids' teams, etc. But this is not my profession. So I'm I'm an author. I love to write. I love to find out these things, tell stories, try to connect the dots. Um, thankfully, I was able to partner with Len on these, who knows everyone, knows the knowledge behind all of this stuff. So we're just trying to bring that message forward. We don't we don't have any side consulting businesses, et cetera. So we just enjoy putting this information out there and saying, here's some science, here's some stories, here's some quotes from athletes and coaches you might recognize and trying to kind of put this all together in a message that you can take to your teams and for parents too, for parents to read and understand more about their developing playmakers so that they can say, I understand that he or she is learning and I need to be patient with that. And here's the processes going on and this is how I can help them. So. Uh, Chris, if I can just add something, I just at this point in my career, I just over the years tried to be impactful in the world of sport and, and cognition and psychology and I just feel that it, it never came to full fruition. And it's because we don't always have a huge audience. And Dan and I thought with books, maybe we can get a larger audience. Not as well as we would hope. And it's, and, and, but with people like you kind of who encourage and support us that we can kind of uh, make this kind of, in my case, I want to make this, this solid kind of final contribution that this is an important area that we've ignored. And I'm just going to keep hammering on it uh, as, as best I can through whatever media I can. And again, as I said earlier, I'm so grateful for your interest in kind of pushing this field forward. Uh, this, is, this has been exciting for me. And, and Dan, I personally have to thank you for helping Leonard become more mainstream. Because first of all, <laughs> every coach after this, go Google Leonard. And you will see a list of scholars, scholarly contributions to the world that are just remarkable, incredible. And Len, I can't thank you enough because like I'm one of those people that's read some of your stuff, not all of it, but uh, definitely some of it <laughs> through the years and been exposed to it uh, through the National Coaching Institute when I did it there. And as a side note, Istan Valley was there when I was there as well. So I was exposed to some go. of these people you talk about, and I'm so grateful for that because that's helped shape who I am. But uh, Dan, thank you so much for helping, uh, you know, kind of bring so much of what Leonard's done to the world. Absolutely. Thanks for the kind words. No, absolutely. Guys, uh, appreciate uh, this is uh, I'm going to say this. This is part one. 
And we're going to do some part twos <laughs> at some point and, and do some more on this because after coaches listen to this, they're going to be intrigued to listen to more. So thank you for sharing the game with us. Thanks. No problem. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things basketball immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.